Hey, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, we are joined by SFU librarian Baharak Yousefi. She and Am Johal are in conversation about the politics of librarianship and issues of access to library spaces and the knowledge they hold. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Below the Radar, and Baharak Yousefi is already planning to leave the meeting. She reluctantly agreed to this interview. <laughs> I'm excited that you're here, but wondering if you can uh, begin by just introducing yourself a little bit. Thanks for having me, Ham. I'm Baharak Yousefi. I'm a librarian, I'm a reader, a fan, a consumer of culture, and not so much a talker and a producer. So, so uh, can you? You're you're a librarian uh, now, but uh, can you talk a little bit about how you started yourself going into libraries? What drew you uh, in your, your love of libraries and what they are? I was a bookseller for many, many years before going to a library school. And I was just really looking for something that paid me a living wage. And uh, libraries seemed to be doing that. And I like books and I like people. And that seemed like a good way to go. I mean, like I'm, I'm a first-generation high school student, never mind like a first generation university student. And while my parents cared a lot that I go to university, I didn't like grow up in libraries. I We didn't have a home library or anything like that. I mean, I, I suppose to be fair to my parents, it's not a priority when like you're living through a revolution and a war and you're trying to like smuggle your kids out of the country. But it wasn't, it just wasn't part of my growing up. And I have brought this up with my dad and he just always says, shut up, I saved your life, which is, (laughs) which is totally fair. But anyway, yeah, so it wasn't part of my growing up, but I've always had a big crush on libraries and I still do. So yeah, so I went into librarianship. And you, you, you also have a kind of a critical take on libraries as well. And uh, where does that where does that come from? Where 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 um, you know having been on the inside, loving libraries, working at them as well. Uh, where does your critique of mm-hmm. libraries come from? Yeah, I definitely didn't go into libraries to try to pick a fight with them. That was uh, that was never the intention. But you know, after working in them for a few years, I just started noticing things kind of slowly. Now I admit. An event that kind of comes to mind a few years ago, I was at this um, big library conference in in Portland, and Loris Lessig was the closing keynote speaker, and um, his talk was, he was speaking about Aaron Schwartz and his kind of tragic death, and as you and your listeners know, Aaron Schwartz was a, a programmer an activist and an open access um, kind of advocate. In 2011, I believe, uh, he was arrested at, uh, at the MIT campus for downloading JSTOR, which is a, a database, uh, JSTOR's kind of entire catalog and setting it free. Um, and they charged him, uh, MIT and the US government charged him with uh, break and enter and f- um, fraud and a bunch of other things. And this would have meant kind of decades in jail probably for him and huge fines. And, and in uh, 20, 
couple of years later, 2013, I believe it was, he, he hanged himself. So this was the topic that Lawrence Lessig was talking about at this huge library conference. And I'm sitting there thinking, the very people that he's talking about that essentially are the reason why this happened to Schwartz are like sponsoring this conference. Like they're, uh, you know, like the cocktail hours is sponsored by one of these publishers and completely opposed to the message that this, this, this keynote is giving, which is like, let's not make knowledge into profit making. And, and of course these publishers are worth billions and they're like actively lobbying against open access in, in government and other places. But, and so I was just kind of thinking, there's these parallel things going on. Like you say, I'm working in libraries, I'm loving libraries, but at the same time, I'm like slowly learning about kind of what we're complicit in. And I think that's kind of where I started thinking about, think about libraries more critically and doing some of that work. Now, there is something called the, the critical uh, library movement. And um, what does that refer to? The critical library movement, there's a, there's a couple of versions of that answer. It, one version is that it started as a hashtag, uh, which is hashtag critlib. And uh, my friend and colleague, Emily Drabinsky, who's in New York, I really like her definition of it. She says, critical librarianship knows that the world could be different. And what that basically means that it's a group of library workers that have kind of committed ourselves to looking at and questioning and interrogating kind of the structures that produce a bunch of people as librarians and produce a bunch of spaces as libraries, right? Like none of it is inevitable. There's like lots of social and political and kind of economic processes and power that goes into it. But then in libraries, there's this kind of assumption of inevitability. Like there's this assumption that that's just how things are and that's how things have been. And so this group is trying to challenge some of that. Yeah, and then, and of course there's more to it as well. Like there's a historical context to the movement. When I say it started as a hashtag, I don't mean to say no one was doing this work before, um, before Twitter or someone put this on there. Some of the background is that the kind of the terminal degree, I guess, for librarianship is a master of library and information studies. It's called different things in different places, but that's essentially the degree that gets you into being a librarian. And this, and you have to have an undergrad degree to get into it, and you can have an undergrad degree in, in what, whatever field. So the, edu the, the time that people spend together being educated in the field is fairly brief. It's just a couple of years. And very generally speaking, I don't, I'm generalizing for sure, and there's uh, definitely cases where this is not the case, but there's not a whole lot of like historical or critical education that goes on in these library schools, which of course has like a couple of, there's an impact on that, right? Like there is the impact of it, people like me taking forever to figure out something's actually not quite right here. And the other impact, which I think is uh, really kind of tragic, is that, again, people like me and movements have to start over again because we're not 
told that this is there's like a long legacy of like it was called radical librarianship before or it was called this other kind of thing and I mean of course there are smart people that figure this out for themselves but it's not part of kind of the formal education yeah when I think about um, uh, libraries and, and really there is a long history of uh, at least attempts at uh, radical accessibility and and sometimes it works and sometimes it falls short but libraries have become kind of like community centers and other places of of social services and that people can access bathrooms they can access the internet they can access other places where there may be uh, barriers uh, in place and so this is also uh, drawn a lot on what does a library today need to be doing to fulfill its mission. And uh, I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about um, how you see uh, how libraries perform that more social function of just being a place where people can can hang out and and be in the world. And, and, and there's that sort of Jean Renoir, uh, the French filmmaker had this quote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing badly here, but something about all great societies are based on loitering and, and, and libraries are still a place where one can loiter and and there's something really good about that because so much of society is is built on not being able to do that and just hang out one of the busiest libraries in the cities that at the carnegie uh, community center the library there is is packed like all the time every day all the time and and uh but i'm just wondering whether it be university libraries or civic libraries what kind of trends you see in terms of how people are attempting to reimagine uh, these places as a, a welcoming space for people in the community to be coming to? And what are kind of additional services that a library needs to provide today in order to be to be relevant? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the, what you're describing about about Carnegie and about the opportunity to loiter and hang out and not have to buy something and all of that is is really the the best thing about libraries, right? It's what it's what attracts so many of us uh, to the field. So that's happening. That that what you're describing is absolutely happening, right? Like the 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 washrooms at uh, VPL are well used by folks that you know need to get in there in the morning and. And, and I love the kind of the outside area of the central branch of Vancouver Public Library. I used to work at that library and it would go up every morning at opening time because there'd be this huge number of people waiting to get in. I mean, libraries are, are well used. There's no question about that. But at this, and there's lots of people doing really great work and hard work to try to make sure that continues to be the case and providing better and more services to folks. And, and that's great. At the same time that that's happening, there's also no sleeping policies in some of VPL's branches. There's also uh, kind of airport style security gates going up in Winnipeg. There's also, you know, a protest outside of Toronto Public Library um, just this past year, um, kind of protesting uh, the transphobia that was being platformed there. So, so both things are happening. And I think it's just really important for people in the field to be mindful of that and to acknowledge that. I mean, kind of going back again to the, the history of libraries that I was talking about. I mean, it's important to know that public libraries in the U.S. were 
originated because there were elites that saw this like urgent need for uh, to like assimilate and control like immigrant populations in Boston and in New York. Like that's why Boston Public Library was established. And so there's this social control agenda that's always been part of um, this profession and part of librarianship. So like we're in the business of Historically, we've been in the business of like educating, not like as in control, not educating as in liberating. And so while, while there is good work being done, I, th there's a need also to kind of uh, deal with that past and, and look at the ways that in which it's kind of coming into our work now. You know, you take a look at current uh, social issues, anti-racism movements, uh, libraries, um, uh, tend to be involved in in various ways, the site where things happen, public conversations, and now are libraries situated in terms of uh, contemporary anti-racism conversation? There has been, um, as with, I think, other institutions, like some of our parent institutions, universities, and um, in terms of public libraries, in terms of cities, there's been a lot of work being done in this area. But I think there's been also a lot of focus on personal reform uh, or individual reform. And that kind of what that looks like is anti-bias training or, you know, anti-racism workshops and uh, book lists that like librarians love making. <laughs> we love making book lists, right? So it's like, here's a list of all the books that you can read um, to learn more about, you know, what, uh, the history of racism in Canada, for example, and reading groups and that kind of stuff. Um, and this is all like, this is all good, well and good, right? But they, but at the end of the day in libraries, the balance of power has remained the same. Like we haven't actually, we're not accomplishing anything. We know that personal reform is an entirely inadequate response to structural violence, right? Like we know this. And if if we are actually serious about EDI or whatever we're calling it, um, we have to be, we have to get serious about redistributing power. We have to be serious about co collegial governance. We have to be serious about uh, who gets to make decisions, you know, like where is power uh, centralized and also about material things like money and benefits and who has, a, who's a precarious worker, who has ongoing positions. And, and I think that, in a way, I'm al almost sometimes seeing the other side of that, like um, where you sometimes the EDI and diversity and this kind of commitment is being used to undermine labor gains, which which is really concerning to me to look at. Like I've seen things like particular qualifications or seniority or different things that kind of unions have fought for are being used as impediments to equity and diversity, which is, of course, not true. But uh, but that's that's an issue that's happening um, that I see all around. So I think we just need to be really thinking about this holistically and intersectionally and thinking about all the different ways in which we, we, we don't want to lose the gains we've had in labor. We can have both. Now, you're doing your, your PhD in geography as well, uh, related to trauma-informed librarianship. Yeah, I'm, 
I'm not doing it on trauma-informed librarianship anymore. I I, last time I spoke to you, you were. So it's uh, great to see you moving around. Oh, I shouldn't have even said anything. So what are you studying? Yeah. No, no, it's a brand new. <laughs> Just to say something about trauma-informed librarianship quickly. I, I, I think... I think it's still a really interesting field, and I think there's a lot to learn there and do there. But mainly what um, what concerned me was, as I was reading and starting to think about things, I was, at the same time as when um, the events that I mentioned at Toronto Public Library with the platforming of um, transphobic speakers and all of that was happening, and the workers at Toronto Public were kind of coming out as speaking against what their institution is causing, uh, which is uh, trauma to a whole large part of our communities. And they were fighting against that, but they were being met with this kind of wall of power that was citing things like intellectual freedom to, to shut down kind of them speaking up against management, if you will. And so as I was thinking about some of the kind of the aspects of trauma-informed librarianship, I was thinking, well, these are frontline workers that are already dealing, you know, with, with the powers that are running the library. And I'm kind of putting this emphasis on, on these individual people again, kind of in a way that I was talking about uh, EDI stuff, as opposed to looking at the structures of power that are really what the problem is. It's not, do you know what I mean? Like not that both can't happen, but I kind of personally shifted focus and was more interested in looking at things on a, at the institutional level. So that's what happened with that. What I'm just beginning to think about right now is I'm really interested in, there's um there's groups of folks out there, uh, library workers who may or may not also have day jobs in libraries who are creating communities and grassroots organizations that are doing a lot of great work outside of the institutional walls, the official walls of libraries and library associations. Uh, Shannon Mattern, who's at the new school in New York has called some of these libraries, I'm using her phrase, fugitive libraries and others have called them other things. And I'm interested in kind of that, I'm interested in that whole thing. I'm just really inspired by this refusal to engage with the institution, but, it, but, but also put a lot of thoughtful work into how best to serve communities that folks are seeing as not being served by the traditional spaces and the traditional services. Yeah, so that's kind of where my head is at with that. Nice. Uh, for for years, you used to uh, produce uh, one book, uh, one SFU. I've seen you talk with uh, or or bring Tegan and Sarah to to SFU, but uh, also I think Maggie Nelson came. But wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the kind of public uh, work that you did with SFU through your work there. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I'm a I'm a reader and a fan. I just love producing things and thinking behind. I'm much more of a behind the scenes, like you know, uh, making things up. As a bookseller, I was really um, I, I I did events in bookstores, and that there's just a love of kind of bringing these conversations together for me personally, and it's something that I'm really realizing right now with 
being online all the time and being on Zoom. And there's just the amount of the great material that's on Zoom every day. Like I would have flown, you know, like I've seen Aaron Dati Roy talk like 10 times in the last <laughs> 10 weeks. And it's just, it blows my mind. But I, I, I love being together with people in a room, you know, and I miss that. And I get that some of what's happening now is also really exciting in terms of accessibility and what is allowing people to do. But I've, there's something that kind of an emotional learning that happens for me when there's, when I'm in a room listening to great people, talk to other great people and talk about their work that I've really enjoyed. So yeah, so I've just really enjoyed the opportunity to make some of that happen, as it were, to use kind of my little platform in the library to bring people together. Yes. Now, I've been following your uh, Twitter feed for a while, which I find incredibly interesting. <laughs> but uh, you were doing a, a, a quite a few posts around West End uh, fonts. And, and how did you get caught up in, <laughs> in, in this zone? Because uh, I, found it, I found it fantastic. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I noticed you like my cocktail tweets, though, the most. I've noticed this about you. Honestly, I just, uh, I don't have anything profound to say about this other than I I love the West End. I'm like just deeply, deeply in love with it. It's my, possibly one of my favorite places on earth. Like there is just no, I mean, think about it. What in, in all the cities, great cities in the world, a neighborhood like that is quite rare where you're like, right in the middle of nature, but also right in the middle of the city, if that makes sense. I've just, I've lived there for over two decades and walked and I just, it's, I have no hobbies other than wandering around. So I just wander around the neighborhood and uh, there's just some really good design, right? Like from the sixties and the seventies. And I just, just really enjoyed looking at them. So I just started taking photos and was like, I'll make up a hashtag, you know, everyone else does. So that's, so then that's just how I just like made up West End fonts. And then the most, the best part of it has been when other people will post a photo and use it as well. Or there's sometimes this like East Van West End kind of competition that happens, which I also really enjoy. So, yeah. And, um, and I just really like Twitter. Like I love the engagement on there. And if that's like, it brings a little bit of like levity to an otherwise horrible situation, then why not? <laughs> Great. And what's what's uh, next on your dissertation? Where are you at on it right now? I've defended my exams and I'm supposed to have had a proposal to Eugene McCann, who was my advisor a while ago, but <laughs> that's where I'm at. But yeah, hopefully soon I'll get to a proposal stage. And then after that, um, research and writing. I just, I mean, the, the PhD just has really given, I wanted to do it because it gave me an official reason to like pay really close attention to what's going on in libraries, if that makes sense. Like I have to officially read people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and I'm bringing people like Arundhati Roy into the work and I'm, I'm not, not so much interested in like creating new knowledge, which I know is what PhD students are supposed to be interested in doing, but mostly I'm just interested in like bringing these thinkers into a world where they haven't been before or have not been as much as they should be and kind of thinking about things 
because it's all related. Libraries are just a part of society. It's not like it's a different thing. So that's really what I'm most excited about the PhD work is a reason to reread those folks and bring them into this work for whoever might be interested in it. Well, good luck on all your uh, work ahead of you. It'd be lovely to bring you back to Below the Radar after you're done your dissertation to talk um, about it. Thank you so much for joining us, Baharik. You said. I can't wait. Can't wait to come back. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Thanks for tuning in to hear from our guest and colleague, Baharak Yousefi. Head to the show notes for links to some of the people and events discussed in this interview and to follow along with the hashtag West End Fonts. We'll see you next time on Below the Radar. Mm-hmm.